Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A safe space for self-exploration, questioning the status quo, and finding out who the fuck you are. Hey gang, thanks for joining us for the fifth episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Our guest today is Lauren Grinnell, owner of Lala's Cuts in Seattle and founder of Runway to Freedom, a nonprofit focused on spreading awareness and providing resources for survivors of domestic violence and their families, which is the main reason she's speaking with us today. I'm really excited to have this conversation because it's also kicking off the regular segment we will be doing for Runway to Freedom, RTF on WTF. Looking forward, we will be sharing the mic with survivors and advocates as a way to spread knowledge on a topic that affects all too many with the hope of creating meaningful change for the future. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Before we dive straight into Runway to Freedom, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, nice to meet everybody. Uh, My name is Lauren Grinnell, and I am a stylist that has been doing hair for the past uh, 13, 14 years. Um, I'm a mother of a 14-year-old, and I was pretty much raised in Seattle since I was six years old. I was born in Madison, Wisconsin, but spend most of my time in Seattle. So that's a little bit about me and what I do day to day. Perfect. Yes, Lauren and I met very conveniently when I was looking for a new stylist in Seattle and I didn't want to go to your typical salon and somehow fate brought us together. And I'm really excited about that because Lauren also recently asked me to join the board for Runway to Freedom. So It's a really exciting time to be part of the organization. And as we're getting started with this conversation, I wanted to first talk about what domestic violence is so everyone listening has a clear and common understanding while we're speaking about RTF's mission. So domestic violence is violent or aggressive behavior within the home, typically. Um, Typically involving the violent abuse of a spouse or a partner. And domestic violence can also be considered for children as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, any, pretty much anything in within the home structure. So it absolutely affects children. And also one of the things that I think is super important to talk about is the fact that there is really no um, discrimination when it comes to domestic violence. Anyone of any race, age, sexual orientation, religion, gender can be no. a victim or a perpetrator. Absolutely. And yes. it can happen to people who are married, living together, or just dating. Yeah, so absolutely. All of this combined means it can affect people of all socioeconomic backgrounds as well yes. and education levels, which is why it's such a pressing issue to talk about is right. that it can literally happen to anyone at the yes. hands of anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah. Could you now that our listeners have that context, talk about why this issue and, you know, as we've talked about, perhaps more accurately, this epidemic is so important to you. Yes, uh, absolutely. I am a survivor of domestic violence. Um, I experienced domestic violence the first time when I was about... How old was I? 20, 21, when I first experienced it. And for me, going through domestic violence and seeing what it can do to you, not only like physically, 
but um, mentally was really huge for me to want to help other people because it's tricky. Domestic violence, you think on a media level, what they'll project to you, and especially 10 years ago, um, was very physical, like bruises to the face, broken bones, really intense physical uh, stuff. But what they don't didn't really talk about was emotional and mental abuse of domestic violence. And so I thought it would it would be very important to teach people what what that is. So for me, it's very personal because I I experienced it. I think most people do experience domestic violence in their life, but just recognizing, oh, that that was domestic violence because we're told so much that that's when someone hits you or pushes you, but it's so much more than that. So my personal experience with it um, was definitely something that I wanted to share with the world to help others to come out and share their stories as well to empower them and um, just have a different life. Yeah, I mean, and Runway to Freedom is now in its 10th year. And as you mentioned, you began the organization as a result of your own experiences. Right. Can you tell me what really inspired you to take this level of action to start a nonprofit and go after it that way? Um, Because I, I know for me personally, with the things that have happened in our lives, particularly in the last few months, one of the things that has been so hard to really wrap my head around has been how do I how do I do something to make a difference when I know this is such a big problem, but it feels like this insurmountable task to actually get somewhere with it. Right. I will say, I don't think that I planned on creating a 501c3 from the beginning of creating Runway to Freedom. So that obviously evolves and changes and like you go down different paths. But when I created Runway to Freedom. I was sitting in the salon I worked at in the time at the time and always wanted to being a creative person um bring like the city together to network and do art um and then also at the same time help others and it just seemed logical that I would do it around domestic violence because I experienced it and it was so personal I was like well let's do a fashion show and do hair because I do hair and um make it uplifting but at the same time very powerful so when I started it in 2010 um I didn't really know that I was going to do it for 10 years and then create a 501c3. It was to benefit other um, organizations like New Beginnings and Mary's Place. So we worked with them for many years and learned a lot of what they were doing. Because I think once you see what other organizations are doing, you're like, oh, well, that's, that's a great way to for them to be the benefactor and then learn what it is we want to specialize in. Um, Because one of them, like Mary's Place does homelessness New Beginnings is strictly domestic violence. So the difference in those two was interesting, too, because it was like, well, yeah, that's that's a homeless shelter. But there's obviously a ton of domestic violence that dovetails with that. Yeah. And being that uh, the epidemic of domestic violence affects one in three women and one in seven men, you know, and that's just what's reported. Right. So when I started, I didn't really know that I was going to create a 501c3. And in fact, that seemed 
daunting and like there's no way I could do that well um congratulations because you have thank you I know we were speaking about it before we started recording that you know it's not um it's not any one person who helps move these things along and you've um as you mentioned decided that you wanted to do this as a way to connect the community and help people become aware of what it is that many people face and trying to help people look at their own relationships and their lives in a different way. So when you're looking back on it, uh, how long did it really take you to come to terms with the fact that you were in an abusive relationship? I mean, you were really young at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't thinking about being 21 and taking on like that heavy of a mental load is a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. I think it takes a village of people around you to support you and tell you what's going on, but it doesn't even begin to like click in your mind until you start going somewhere that has like support groups or reading about different experiences of domestic violence. But then being in it is like, oh, this isn't right. Like you destroyed all of my clothes while I was gone, which means you came into my place, took my stuff. While you weren't living together. No, no, and not living together ever. And ruined all of my clothing. And even when that happened, it was like, oh, well, maybe like, he didn't mean to really do that. You kind of make excuses for it, right? Because you don't want that to be happening. And raising a child with someone like that, you kind of in denial of the fact, well, this is the other half of this person, yeah. right? But once I started to see repetitive behaviors too, and with the education that I was getting from New Beginnings, I was like, oh, this is definitely domestic violence. So did you actively seek out uh, New Beginnings as a resource for yourself? Was it recommended to you? Like, how did you get Um, on that path to kind of start educating yourself? Yeah, well, New Beginnings, I was introduced to New Beginnings, oddly enough, when I was doing my apprenticeship for hair. And so I worked at a salon downtown and my one of my teachers at the time that was getting me through this advanced training, which is a year long um, in a high end salon had us do volunteer work, which was fabulous. Yeah, great. So we gave back to them. We went and did haircuts at their their shelter. And it was then speaking with those women about their experiences that I was like, I am living in that. Um, and so... So it was eye-opening for you because yeah. you all of a sudden... It sounds like there was a mirror sort of turned back on yourself by hearing those conversations. Right. And I thought, how amazing that I'm here to, you know, give this haircut to these to these women that, you know, otherwise wouldn't be able to do it. And they're like giving me education on how to be safe in relationships. That's a beautiful thing, to be honest. And I think that there's something to be said for there's I forget who said this and I know I'm gonna um, I don't want to fact check this later but there's a spe- I'm like should we go yeah <laughs> <laughs> right there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women oh yes maybe it was yes. Ruth Bader Ginsburg but I could be totally wrong so I've nobody quote it. me on that I've heard it <laughs> um yeah but I do think that that is 
a really important thing to think about, particularly when it does come to something around domestic violence or sexual violence, particularly yeah. because it does affect majority of women. And right. while it doesn't discriminate, mm-hmm. there's certainly a scale tipping in that direction. For sure. And I think For that sure. as females, it can be a lot harder to open up about that because societally speaking, we've sort of been given this crappy hand of take ownership of your own abuse as opposed to having society identify ways to eradicate it. And so there's a lot of pressure to ask yourself, what should you do differently? And Mm -hmm. what did you do wrong to even Mm -hmm. deserve this? And it's really difficult to look at it through that lens and not feel angry about how we treat this when it's such a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you you bring up a good point about when people are like, what did you do to provoke this? Um, A big question survivors of abuse are always asked is why is at the forefront of the question with either why do you stay? Why don't you leave? Why don't you just get a job? Why? I mean, like... Why do you abuse people? Yeah. And then for those people that are asking who don't understand, I've never seen this before. Well, it's very much out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And earlier in the conversation was that the outlook from media, mm-hmm. I'd say until very recently, I do think that right. sh- the shift is happening in terms of what we um, project to society from you know films or, or television or whatever, but is that there was a specific way that domestic violence happens and this right. is what it is. And right. I do think that the internet and the broader availability to get voices out there and have people tell stories is yeah. it's a really miraculous thing to see just how much you can connect with people who have gone right. through similar experiences yeah. that you may not even know who are on the other side of the world because right. now you sort of have a line of sight into, well, this is my experience. Right. Somebody else can relate to this. How can yeah. we have a broader conversation? Yeah. And one of the things that I said when we were at uh, the event that we went to a couple of weeks ago at Seattle Center oh, yes, to speak yes. with legislators around, you know, the future plans for Seattle's behavioral and mental health right. was it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. And I used to feel bad about talking about these things because you don't want to feel like you're pushing something on somebody, but it should fucking make you uncomfortable. It's not okay that this is what's happening. So if it's making you uncomfortable to your point, it's probably because either you haven't experienced it and it's easier Mm -hmm. to turn a blind eye or somebody who you're close to hasn't experienced it. And I think the fewer degrees of separation you have between yourself and an an event like that is very much what dictates your involvement in it. And I can speak for myself in that respect. I mean, it's why I'm so excited to be working on this project with you because everything that has happened in our lives in the past few months. Yeah. Well, it's not distinctly, you know, it's not domestic violence, but I think domestic violence and sexual violence dovetail a lot. Absolutely. Is where all of a sudden, you know, you feel paralyzed, like there's nothing that you can do. And Mm -hmm. you sort of start to realize that it's a, it's a self-limiting thing yeah. where it's like, if I get involved and I pay attention to it and mm-hmm. I start talking about these things and I tell people that yeah. this is what's happening, the statistics that you mentioned, plenty right. of other statistics that will yeah. astound people. Right. It's like, show them the numbers, show yeah. them 
what they need to understand to right. realize how serious and dire this is right. because there are right. people who are suffering as a result of this people who, yeah. who get so badly physically or mentally abused that they can't continue to live their lives and the right. people who are perpetrating are never accountable to it like we have right. to talk about it yeah absolutely and I, I i think that if someone comes to you and says you know my partner has abused me or yeah, just that. My partner has abused me. Instead of asking them why the person abused them, you should ask, what can I do to help you? Instead of why are you in that? Because already that person has been put in a, an abusive situation for God knows how long. So can you imagine like someone saying to you why after their abuser has already told them why are you this way? Why are you that way? And then you go and ask for help and they're like, why again are you this way? Yeah. It's like, uh, I have no job because I've now I'm supporting the children I have. Maybe I didn't go to school maybe because to raise these children, there's just a lot of different things that go into why people stay. I think that's a really good point too, which is what can I do to help is not a question that you hear asked very much at all. And no. one of the things that I've tried to do and be more cognizant of just in my own, you know, self-awareness and whether it's a situation like this or something else is what can I do to support you? Because I think that right. we have this expectation that, again, there's this onus on the abused to figure out how to solve this problem when in reality, like you said, it takes... A, a lot of people to come together and help somebody through that. And mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know that anybody ever fully moves past that because it is such a, a traumatizing event or series of events that happen. To your point, it can impact you as a, as a person and then you as a parent and then your child. And right. so there's a lot, I think, that happens I mean, of course, behind closed doors, that seems like an obvious statement because that's obvious. <laughs> that's where right. a lot of it does happen. But right. but even just the speaking about it is happening behind closed doors. Like nobody's yeah. announcing how tragic and disruptive this type of behavior is for, as you mentioned, the physical, mental, emotional health of people, the sexual health of people. Like right. this is I, I've had this conversation with a few people recently that it actually is appalling to me and quite disturbing and upsetting that there are are no political platforms mm -hmm. on how to stop domestic violence. Right. And it's probably a little, I don't know, maybe it's a little too progressive to believe that it could ever fully be eradicated from society. This is something that's been happening for literally probably since the dawn of time. Right. But at the same point, you have to do things little by little. And and I think it was Trevor Noah talked about this even just with gun violence, where it's like, just because you can't stop it all at once doesn't mean you can't stop it bit by bit. And oh, I absolutely. think that if you looked at gun violence statistics compared to domestic violence statistics, which also involves, by the way, gun violence. Yes. Then we should be having those conversations in tandem instead of segmenting it because if at the helm of a lot of this is domestic violence, how do we right. plan to chip away at that 
to make it less accepted, right. less tolerable, uh, sorry, tolerated, not tolerable. And, right. and ultimately getting to a point where we are creating more laws and legislation and moving through this in a way that is helping the people who not only are potentially future um, survivors or victims, but helping the people who have gone through this and who need resources and support. Right. And I mean, from us going to the behavioral health forum, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was really interesting because, yeah, there was no representation of domestic violence. And while watching the representatives and survivors speak on, you know, addiction and mental health, I was like, well, what about what domestic violence does to people's brains? It's fully trauma and it's fully you have PTSD. A hundred percent, yes. So why wouldn't domestic violence survivors have some kind of forum and platform where they like fill out this paperwork and they are given help from our state where our tax dollars go to help because domestic violence is at the front of all of these incidents or like reports that happen and starts with domestic violence with trauma because say say your abuser kicked you down the stairs and you're you know you hit your head and then you have ultimate like brain damage from that so that's from domestic violence and they should recognize that as a mental health problem from and the abuser side and the survivor side. Yeah. Because they both are going to need rehabilitation. Yeah. Um, and if we don't do that, if we don't provide services like that to other than just Wellspring that is in Seattle, you know, there's one place that, that does rehab with DV abusers. But with the abusers, with the abusers for men, I believe. I don't think it's for survivors. But they need more of that. They need more resources for the abusers and for the survivors. They need to change like legislation and how we do domestic violence protection orders, how they're granted. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I know that that's something that we've talked about briefly just yeah. in personal conversations right. and the complexity behind it. And I also have um, another mm-hmm. friend who's gone through very similar experiences, I think, in terms yeah. of trying to protect herself and her children. And yeah. it's scary to think about just the threats that that really keep coming because there is right. no, again, there's no accountability no. for an abuser. And it's more that you as somebody who is a survivor has to do everything in your power to protect mm-hmm. yourself and your child or children. Right. And or anybody in your family or loved ones, because there's no really limit to who that domino effect can impact. Right. Is it at the state level? Yes. The state of Washington has certain ways that you, you know, you file the domestic violence protection order. And the way that that goes is, you know, you go into the courthouse, you go and fill out this paperwork saying the incident that happened. They'll give you a two week just right away order that will protect you. And then in two weeks, you go and see the judge and they say yes or no to, to giving you that one year protection. Keeping in mind the whole time that this protection is a piece of paper. Yes, it's a piece of paper. And it's also when you go to the court date, the abuser is there that you have to speak in front of. And like, do you think that most people are going to be able to like vocalize what happened? And then what if they don't have a lawyer? Because they're very expensive. They have to represent themselves. So this is like a problem and it needs to change because 
they can change it and to not be so invasive of a survivor's like mental state. Well, you just made the point, right? Which is that many, if not all Mm -hmm. survivors of some form of PTSD. Yeah. And that's not to say it's not complex PTSD. If it's happened multiple times, then you're right. And for anybody who's not familiar with complex PTSD versus what I would call standard PTSD, I would really advise you to Google it because it's a, at a high level, it ultimately means that you have the symptoms of PTSD, but then it's exacerbated and also something that you aren't necessarily going to be able to heal from, right? Um, right, and you can't, the other problem was that with that is that you can't prove it. So imagine going to a courthouse and saying, I have all of these night terrors, I can't sleep at night, I check my door five million times a day, all of these things, and they're like, the way you're gonna prove this abuse today, ma'am, is you're gonna have pictures of it. Like as if you're going to pull out your iPhone and be like videoing this while you're getting abused. Yeah. And abuse doesn't work like that. Abuse is usually very manipulative and like targeted uh, in situations where you won't have premeditated. Premeditated. Like it's premeditated. They're like, yeah, I'm about to go to her house. I'm about to watch her. I'm about to sit outside her window. I'm about to sleep outside her door. I'm going to take her phone. I'm going to ruin all her clothing. I'm going to call her friends. I'm going to stalk them on social media. I mean, all of those things happen to me, but how would I, I prove it? I was about to ask you that. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think yeah. that's your... And on and on. Yeah. You know and, what I mean? And, and on and on and on. And those are just some of the things. And there's so many more ways now yes. to abuse somebody too. If you really it's like think about mm-hmm. just how, um, yeah, it's great that the internet, I was just saying it's great. People can share their stories, but now it's also just yeah. so many more ways for an abuser to strike. Yeah. There's all the GPS stuff and, and abusers aren't, you know, let's, let's be real about this too. Abusers are not just people that homeless people on the street that are, uh, yeah. that are all on drugs. Okay. These are lawyers. These are doctors. These are waitresses, waiters. I mean, it's anybody. And it's, that's it's anybody. It. So then you have quote unquote intellectual abusers using the system and know how to and money. And so they need to change that process of a DVPO, um, and we'd like to change that as, you know, we sat down with some of the representatives at the mental health forum, um, to speak in regards to changing those. I think that definitely needs to be changed. And also- Is the DVPO, from my knowledge, domestic violence police order? Protection order. Protection order, order. sorry, thank you. And the, and, and the people signing these, usually they are commissioners. So I believe that needs to change too. It needs to be judges signing off on these orders. They need to be highly educated in domestic violence. And they also need to change that if the person has a history of and is mentally abusing, you can show that that way. You can show the text or you can't just, that wouldn't just be hearsay. Right. It's like in these situations, they would be abuse because that's what it escalates to. Well, it is abuse. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's not even yeah. that. I mean, sending threatening messages is abuse. And Absolutely. one of the things that you just said that sparked this thought as well is one of the women that we were talking to at the forum had, uh, was part of an organization that does trauma-informed training for law enforcement as well. Right. And that's something that I've become very keenly interested yes. in because one of the things that Holly and I experienced the past few months is that the police that we engaged with, mm-hmm. 99% of them, yeah. have no idea or at least did not exhibit that they have any idea right how to communicate with somebody who has been traumatized moments before they speak to them well shouldn't the person showing up to help sexual assaults and domestic violence be 
specific in that realm. You you would think. And I feel yeah, like it should be. people blame, you know, things like I know specifically in Seattle, you know, people blame city council for police not being able to do their jobs. But I all and that may be true in certain circumstances. But the thing that drives me a little insane is that that also, again, assumes that an individual officer has no accountability for being aware of how to handle that situation. Right. So why? So why did you send them then? Why did you send the DV? Because they have a domestic violence um, uh, force team, yeah. team force, whatever. And, and even if they send them and then that's not how they're behaving, then what does that say? Because one of the things right. that Holly said to me right out of the gate was, don't call 911. They're not going to do anything they mm-hmm. never do. Yeah. And true. guess what? It's true. We spent weeks trying to get them to understand what was going on from our side. And the whole thing felt more like they were trying to pit us against yeah. each other You're than trying to help yourself. us find a perpetrator. Yeah. I imagine very similarly based on what you've said to me and what I, I know of my um, other friends and relationships that have gone through domestic violence or sexual violence situations is very similar there is no accountability one or sorry every five in one thousand i believe rapes are prosecuted and sentenced Mm because i think it's maybe nine out of a thousand then five actually get prosecuted Mm -hmm. again i'll verify that number but yeah but that also is, like you said, of reported cases, which yeah. we're pretty sure is only 10% of what's happening, which would right. indicate that five of every 10,000? Yeah. And probably more. Yeah. Like you said, more than that, because they're not all reported. And so, well, also thrown out. Like, well, there's not enough evidence. It does raise the question of, well, well, what do you need besides what you're looking at physically? You're seeing right. on me. I can right. provide these text messages. I can do this. I can do that. But guess yeah. what? Manipulation is happening first and foremost at the mental level yeah because even if it starts right. physically it the, the physical impact creates an immediate mental and emotional impact there is yeah. no distance between no. a, a punch to the face and how that impacts you emotionally right. period yeah. like right. that's happening real time same thing right absolutely and it there's not um you can't you I mean you can't capture that and for that so for them by them i mean like legislation and like judges and to say oh prove that is like abusive in itself i totally agree Um, (laughs) we just have some doggy visitors today uh (laughs) they want to say something (laughs) they're pissed yeah they're just as angry as we are yes (laughs) (laughs) but i think that that's completely fair which it is it it it's a an extension of the abuse when you don't respect or trust somebody who's coming to you when two percent of cases of accusations are false too Two percent. Two percent. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, look at the numbers then. We're such a numbers, you know, country. It's like, well, look at those numbers that that has to change. And they they need to uh, hear survivors out, like hear their stories. And so we plan on, you know, taking this to legislation, sharing as many stories as we can to get it changed, because this is a 20 year old, like more than 20 years old of how they're doing this. I don't yeah. think it's been looked at for 20 years. And so that def- that part needs to change. I think that, yeah, they need to have judges signing off on that and then more education within the CPS program, Child Protection Services, to be looking when they do these house checks for mental like abuse and be trained on that, what to look for. And yeah, you may not, of, of course, course, like... You're not going to catch everything because you no. can't. You're not there. You're not But what it. if you were oh that let me check up on that let me see also if the abusers have a record 
I think that they should have to um, register as domestic I violence abusers, yeah, just like I we actually. do with sexual predators. Yeah, I think it should be listed. I think that if it's a severe domestic violence, like hell yeah, and over also, the age of eighteen, like you should have to register that. A- absolutely, and I mean, just even thinking about it from the dating perspective, I mean. I know people who run background checks on people that they're going to possibly date because my fourteen-year-old app dating and heard like some that. like radio show about it. She was like, "Oh, mom, do you know?" I said, "Absolutely." Yeah, I would run it, and yeah. not to mention the fact that that should be included for somebody who might be considering dating somebody with a record of domestic Absolutely. violence. Yes, for sure. Well, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was the fact that I've read on average it takes seven attempts to leave before someone successfully exits an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself in a similar push and pull situation and what were the first steps that you took to try to remove yourself? I definitely think there is multiple attempts to try and leave domestic violence situations. A number I don't have I don't have a number, but yeah, I mean, seven I guess it sounds was, yeah. about you know. I mean, seven. Yeah, sounds about sounds about right. Um, I say from from my experience, um, yes, it takes multiple times to get to the point of leaving. Because if you think about it, like practicing doing something that you've never done before, it takes some tries to like accomplish it, quote unquote, perf- perfectly. Yeah. And in this situation, there's no perfect way to do that. But I'd say, you know, for for myself, it it looked like uh, trying to break up with this person, um, trying to date other people. Uh, for others, it might be like they need to, they have to move out, and that might take multiple times. You know, yeah, totally depending on what's going on with the lease situation or their finances, but. Um, yeah, I'd say that that sounds about right. You know, seven tries before before you really get it and are, are ready yeah. and comfortable. As it kind of reminds me, too, of um, sobriety for people, like going to going to treatment. Yeah, like absolutely. It, it takes some time to do something different, right? Because yeah. you're, you're in this realm of doing the same thing. Oh, I've been in this abusive relationship for years or months. Well, I'm so used to doing that that now I have to, like, Figure out how to not figure out how to be, not do it. Yeah. So undoing undoing that. Um, well, I think it's interesting that you draw the comparison to sobriety or addiction because I think that there is an emotional addiction to some extent yes. when it comes to absolutely domestic violence. And oh, they've they've like scientifically shown it with serotonin levels, right? That people get pleasure from within sex and drugs. Same thing with a relationship that seems oh that's love or i become addicted to this feeling yeah and and i think that it's scary to think of it that way <laughs> that absolutely as people we're so vulnerable to something that we can know is so bad for us both with right. other people or with substance abuse and right. i think that that just begs the question you know how do you get to a point where you say this is what i'm going to do and now that I know that this is what I'm going to do, how do I do it? Because I think that that kind of swings back to an earlier part of our conversation, which is it's the education, it's the resources. How do you find out? And it can be very hard as somebody who's experiencing domestic violence to even be able to educate yourself because, you know, there's fear of somebody seeing what you're doing and things getting worse. There's fear of leaving and 
you know, this not feeling wanted or loved, because even though this isn't love, that's what you've sort of been conditioned to think. So when you were making the decision to, to leave and knew that was really the final step for you, how did you further educate yourself? Because you'd mentioned speaking to, um, the women at, I'm sorry, I forget the name. Uh, New Beginnings. New Beginnings. Yeah. Um, sort of sparking that and helping you realize it. But how did you figure out what to do next? And, and what did you do? I reached out to, I fortunately had family and friends that are extremely supportive. My mom being one of them, and my brothers being another, and a couple really good friends who had seen the abuse and... You know, we're like, we need to do something. And that's like when one of my friends took action with me to report it, that was huge because I didn't have to do it alone. Yeah. So it didn't feel so daunting to think about these things together, but rather have a fun to, friend, excuse me, to make a joke with, even make light of in, in such a hard situation. But then you don't feel so not normal, you know, to have that support. Yeah. I mean, I. I imagine it's an extremely isolating feeling and having a support system is critical to your ability to leave and feel confident in the decision to leave. Right. And I guess maybe one of the questions I have is, do you remember feeling confident that this was going to be the moment that, you know, you didn't turn back, that that you knew it was the last time? No. No, because even though you may feel confident in that, oh, I'm not there anymore, or in my situation, I wasn't living with this person, right? Thank God. So, but it, but yeah, thank God. But at the same time, it was like, he knows where I live. And a restraining order is not going to keep someone from like doing what they want to do. So I felt a little bit of relief when there was like incarceration but I always knew that that was going to come to an end. So it, it didn't really, I don't know. I guess there was moments of relief, right? There's moments of relief with abuse because it continues to um, affect you throughout your life, depending on depending on what kind of, uh, you know, mental health help you get or not. I think it will always affect you. Well, that's interesting that you say that so, because I actually had thought about how long did it take you to feel quote safe again or do you even now feel fully safe because you know you have a child with this person so Mm -hmm. there's sort of always an Mm -hmm. opening a doorway where that person can can be inserted into your life whether you want them to be or not it's hard when you have children with your with the abuser because Yes, you have them in your life sometimes forever, unless you have, that's completely cut off. But if you're still raising a child with this person, you have to interact with them on some certain level. And it's never, rarely ever super positive. So I'd say for people that are in this situation and are, you know, taking those steps to get out, um, definitely uh, reconsider like, your birth control and protection because having it, bringing a child into that is like heart wrenching and you can't change that for 
who that partner is, who that parent is. You're not, you, you can't change that. Yeah. And then, so it affects them a lot. <clears throat> well, I think one of the important things that you've spoken about as far as when you also founded RTF is mm-hmm. that a big piece of that for you was not only advocating for yourself and other survivors, um, but also for your daughter, Brooklyn, right. because right. there was a sense of, you know, kind of mama bear, it sounds like, yeah. in you. Um, like, oh, yeah. That was like, I. Definitely. this is like above everything else, like keep my child safe. Right. And because there's so much manipulation around abuse, that can be used so much back and forth between a child that they're put in a place of sometimes given power to, you know, go against me, the mother, or confuse them. So they don't really know what they're a child. They don't really know what's going on. But the effects that it has on them is so high. And, um, you know, you just innately are like, I want to protect this person, but I can't a thousand percent. There's just some, some times where you have to go, I'm really hoping that today's a good day for her. Yeah. So. Well, can you talk to me a little bit about what has been challenging for you as a parent who is a survivor of domestic abuse who has had to navigate the legal system for Mm. custody and Mm -hmm. protection for you and your child? Yeah. So I was taken to court by my daughter's dad, who was the abuser, and it went on for two years. And so... Right when I got that paperwork, it was like rush of PTSD. Like, oh, here we go. And he wanted 50-50. And I always knew that that was not something that I was ever going to be comfortable with, nor has it ever happened in her life that she had 50-50. So it's not something that she was used to. Yeah. So I knew that that was never going to be my final. But then you have, you know, your child's input. And then you have people giving her input. And so you really don't know what to do. You don't know how it's going to land and you don't really know what to do. And it's really hard because you can get lawyers to represent you for lots and lots of money. And you'll probably go through a lot of that money. Um, And there's some lawyers that will do pro bono work um, in Washington state. I have a really good reference for for a woman that would if people need it. Um, Um, I'll put that up on RTF site okay. as one of the resources. Great. So then yeah. um, we can have anybody who's listening who might need that resource or can provide it to somebody else will have access to it. Yeah, that would that would be great because um, it is out there. And um, But I ended up representing myself halfway through because money and I had all the knowledge of what had happened in the past so how long after your daughter was born were you going through those custody battles i went to one when she was about two either two to four and um there was a no show on the other side so i was granted full custody of my daughter uh but when she turned 10 i was taken to court by him for 50 
percent custody. And I mean, my daughter had to go through interviews. The school was involved. Like there is a lot. I feel like that's a lot for a child to take on. Absolutely. Um, again, I've you know I've seen some of this with an, another friend of mine who has right. three children, and yeah, it's actually appalling mm-hmm. how much flexibility um, an abuser has within the court system I and that how hard you have to fight for something that is to protect yourself and especially children. Yeah, uh, Not absolutely. to discount anyone's protection, but more that if we're not protecting children, <laughs> then yeah, like, what I do mean, we really care about? Yeah, absolutely. And you're, and you're asking very vulnerable children, to your point, who don't mm-hmm. necessarily see or understand everything that's happening and are malleable, very easily manipulated in a lot of cases because you're young and innocent. And you want things to be good. You want it to be good. A child wants love and everything to be like rainbows and like great, right? So when they're put in a position to have, I guess, power or a choice, a lot of people bring this um, confusion into cases they think that children have a voice they don't yeah i mean there would be an interviewer that talks to them but they don't know what they're signing up for really it's as a child you don't know what you're saying no or how sorry how what you're saying is going to impact that final outcome and that could change you know these are children so it's like if we are listening to what they have said to these professionals then why is there so much leniency and you know not not Right away. Well, and if someone has a past, like this person has like literally other three other cases, right, of DV. Um, it's like, what? but because it's other people, you can't bring that in. That's another legal thing. You can't bring it in. They'll kind of, oh, that's there. There's a history. But um, it it's, it's not like, oh, that's there. And then we will be doing supervised visits for sure. It's not like that. No, I, I mean, and that's what's, scary as well is that mm-hmm. I mean even supervised visits in some cases the supervisor doesn't have to be somebody who is paid and yeah. has your best in, or doesn't matter if they're paid or not has your best interest or the right. child's best interest in mind this is just their job and it is whatever it is and they can right. also be manipulated uh, manipulated oh, yeah. I've witnessed this with yeah. somebody else and it's like how on earth are you letting somebody who can be so easy ma- easily manipulated by an abuser yeah. be the person who's supervising your children with this abuser yeah, and letting like, them take Hello? control of the situation right like that's your job to to, to call, make sure it doesn't call happen. bs and yeah. go mm, yeah seen that before yeah and so, yeah so i think it really raises the question in general getting back to our conversation around the trauma-informed response it's all or um trauma-informed training is yeah. that people across the board in the system need to be educated and understand it because if you don't have the capacity to determine that somebody's psychologically fucking with you to get what they want because that they're a narcissist and a sociopath then how can i possibly trust you to keep my child safe in a supervised visit like where's your mental health background check to make sure that you know what's going on and how to level set this situation well right because if i feel like if um there was more of that within this case that i had more because they wrote stipulations in there. They wrote the safety concerns in there, which were, some of those were were very helpful, but not all of it. And I think because they ultimately wanted, want, wanted to do what's best for 
the child, they say, is like, okay, well, they need to have some kind of, you know, connection with this person. And like, yeah, like, is it better to have a connection with somebody who's abused your mother and has abused you and Mm -hmm. is like, but no, they need to be in your life because biologically they have some like capacity like who cares if it's not if it's not healthy it's like and oh it's healthy sometimes but not healthy now I mean we went through an incident in the summer where it was like months of no visitation because of abuse and I can't say oh that definitely would have been stopped through through this this and this measure but I will tell you they didn't accept my domestic violence protection order when I went to get it in this beginning of the summer when my daughter had reported abuse and CPS came and and checked the home and everything was flagged okay uh they wouldn't do our domestic violence or they wouldn't pass our sign our domestic violence protection order excuse me because this was a family court issue and i'm like it's domestic violence there's history of it we've shown you all of it no this just seems like bad parenting yeah, that's actually one of bad the, parenting. the flags of domestic abuse is being a bad parent by yeah. abusing your child. Yeah, I'm like, but what about being a bad parent and then there's history there? Like, yeah. what do you mean? Go to family court services. Oh, you want me to spend more money on the state? Yeah. I'm going to give more money to it. So is that basically like part of the issue with that is, well, if it's that important to you, it's, you're basically going to find the money to facilitate making this happen? That's how all law is, I think. That's fair. Absolutely. I mean, it's a pay us. It's a money pit. Yeah, and I mean, people got to get paid to, to do their work and be professionals. Sure. Absolutely. But I think then on the same on the same side, it's like okay, well, if you're going to say that, you know, we're going to spend all this money. Well, what are you going to be doing to protecting to protect these? Yeah, because of children pa- and a piece of paper is not enough. No. You've spoken quite a bit about your experience and where there's there's definitely shortcomings in the system. I mean, I think it sounds like from what you've said as well, there's definitely been bright spots and moments where things have have benefit you, at least in a short term capacity. But right. when you were starting RTF and, and even just thinking about the future of it, one of the services that we've discussed is to enhance the availability of resources to mm-hmm. those in need. Right. So. What areas do you feel need more attention from law enforcement or the legal system or other such civil organizations that would really help inform the public, but also ideally change the way that the system views this type of abuse? Because everything that you're saying right now feels like it should be super obvious Mm -hmm. that it shouldn't be that hard to execute again. So in your opinion, based on your experiences, what do you see as like the biggest areas of opportunity to try to facilitate that change, even if it's in a small way and and trying to chip away it? I think we could have education in Seattle public schools around domestic violence because we have sexual education in Seattle public schools at fifth grade, which is young. Yeah, it's really young. Um, and if they're going to be talking about how people have sex and how people con- you know, contract STDs, why would we not talk about domestic violence to these children? Yeah, I think that's fair. And, I, and especially as a kid, when you're growing up just in general, that, you know, I think at large, at least this is my perception, not having children, but growing up, having this idea that, you know, you're not supposed to hit people, you're not supposed to bully people, Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to treat people X, Y, Z ways. Right. People are, in some capacity, there's always somebody doing 
something along those lines. So it's really sort of like early intervention yeah, with absolutely. the people who are exhibiting abusive behavior as well. Right. So it's right. informing what is abusive behavior and then also saying if you're exhibiting abusive behavior, these are the things we're going to do to stop that and to transition yes. that behavior into something else that's a yeah. more healthy coping mechanism for whatever it is that is coming out of you in yeah. an abusive way. Because I'd like to believe that most people are born inherently good and mm-hmm. that life shapes us all in different ways. And right. there's definitely science to back the fact that somebody who has been born into an abusive home mm-hmm. is more likely to be abusive, Absolutely. is more likely to have XYZ mental health mm-hmm. issues or physical health issues, whatever it might be. When you think about the physiological combination of what trauma does to somebody, right. we can't expect that everybody's just going to be 100% typical, not have any sort of behaviors that are right. concerning, but we also can't act like there's nothing we can do about it because there are things we can do about right. it. We just I think we're so reactive and we're not proactive in terms of teaching people how to process their emotions in ways that are healthier. Right. And I, I, that that begins with children. So if we started there on a young level, like age five, you know, in kindergarten, by having these educational programs in Seattle Public Schooling, um, hopefully through the tax of, you know, marijuana dispensaries that's where the money is supposed to be going can you explain that real quick so the taxes from legal legal marijuana dispensaries it's supposed to go to seattle public schools okay that money that's earned and so you know i don't i haven't seen the numbers on that that'd be interesting to see what they are doing with that money and 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 charting it but that's definitely somewhere that they could go is giving education on domestic violence from from age five to 12 in these Seattle public school systems. I think that's one way. Um, I think definitely educating, you know, the CPS providers, the first response or, you know, SPD um, and, and their DV unit hearing stories from abusers, they would get a lot more education on what this looks like. So definitely education, um, resources like pro bono, you know, lawyer services, um, as well as like counseling. Yeah, I think definitely counseling and support groups, as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation as well, like giving people yeah. a safe space to open up about it. And yeah, to be free in it because it's like AA is all over the place, you know, so it's like DV support groups. Also, um, when we worked with uh, Denise Brown, who's um, outside of California, and if you guys aren't familiar with Denise Brown, she is Nicole Brown. Nicole Brown's sister, who was murdered by O.J. Simpson. So she spoke at our show a couple years ago, and a really awesome thing that she does is she has kids pledge um, not to use their hands for hitting, and she has them outline their hands and say, I pledge, you know, not to use my hands for hitting. So it's like her kind of movement, you know, starting something like that or taking hers and going in the schools and say, I pledge, you know, not to do this and do it yearly with these children with that education. I mean, I'm sure she would, she's, she has a dear friend here. She would fly out and be a part of it. Yeah. Getting something like that going. But education is probably at the forefront of it. And it's funny because people talk about money all the time. Well, yeah, we do need like resources for people, Of, of course. And you need money to have educators and give them jobs, but it's not like we're making a whole filtration system. Okay. We're not doing a sewage system. We're not. It's not a computer-based program we're trying to reinvent. It's 
We have educators. And it's society, right? We have to be accepting of the fact we have to talk about it. I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, but guess what? At the same token, I'm not. Because it makes me really fucking uncomfortable. It makes everybody Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. The fact that it makes us uncomfortable means we have to talk about it. You don't educate yourself on something by just... And why don't you want to talk about it? To me, if someone doesn't want to talk about it, there's something going on. Yeah, it's either... deeper. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two... In my mind, there's two really common situations. One is that it's a lot easier to stick your head in the sand and not have to think about it because it's unpleasant. And then there's the, this impacts me in some way that makes me uncomfortable and I don't want to deal with it. Well, it's hard to get men to speak out on it, um, I think, due to just the masculinity side of our our culture, which is sad. Um, I've had men come forward about it more in the past couple of years, which is great. But I think because once you start talking about domestic violence, you know, we say everybody's been affected by it. Well, that could be they are an abuser. So you start talking about domestic violence on a level of in work, within power and control arenas, mm-hmm. you think they're going to want to sit and talk about and remember when they beat their you know, spouse or cousin or, you yeah, know. I mean, if, they, if they've abused somebody historically or if they're still an abuser, right? Because yes. that's the defensive nature of something as well. That's a really, really yes. good point that I didn't, um, I didn't even really think about to that degree is that if you don't want to talk about it, is it because you're uncomfortable because you do this? Is it because you behave mm-hmm. this way? I'm not saying that's always. No, no. It, it could oh, yeah, be just no, like sure. the, it's, uh, but it's an, it's PTSD a, for someone. But It's a plausible reality, though. But why don't people in power and control want to? Well, this we know because the president of the United States right now is a literal abuser. And yeah. we yeah. acknowledge Openly. it. And he's still... I read recently that nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by mm. an intimate partner in the mm. United States, yeah. which during Ugh. one year equates to more than 10 million Ugh. men and women. Yeah. And so it drives me absolutely insane when I think yeah. about the fact that we don't hear politicians talking about this because it's an opportunity to create a platform that spans the masses and no one's in address- addressing it. And I want to fucking know why. It's because the mm. people at the top are yeah. part of the problem. It's power and control. So if you look at if you look at the domestic violence contro- power and control wheel, and read that through, and we can post that too on the site. Mm-hmm. Um, very very interesting where that starts and where it goes. But and I'm not saying all people in power. Okay, no, I'm not, I'm not doing not. It's not that. a generalization. I no, think there, but there but, are facts that point to the reality that this does happen, and well, it's happened yeah. over the course of history. Well, it's not just to look at one person no, right now. We can look at it with music. We can look at it with sports. We can look at it with people in power and control who are high up. It's the whole Me Too movement. It's times yeah. up. I mean, even just the fact that like what you're uh, what you had mentioned with Nicole Brown Simpson. Like, there's yeah. so much that happens and even just talking to one of our friends a couple of weeks ago holly and she were watching law and order svu and mm. it's like they have hundreds of episodes that are not repeat content and everybody's so engrossed in it and like oh my god i can't believe mm-hmm. these horrific things that have happened and it's like mm-hmm. this shit's real yeah what, we're, it we're, isn't, we're isn't, consuming this and we're yeah. not Acknowledging the Is that problem. the one with Mal- Mariska Hariga uh, And she's like a huge advocate she's a huge for advocate. DV. I follow her on uh, social media for yeah. that reason. It's really amazing to see what somebody who's been so invested in that from a career standpoint is really advocating for yeah. outside of the Yeah, but the even show. then, right? Like she's advocating and doing what she can, but there's people of power and control in that show, I'm sure. Okay. Right? I mean, probably mostly being white males going. Mm, we're not going to have that content. 
we're not going to be doing that content. Well, it's it's interesting too to think about how how domestic violence is portrayed as just media is changing in general now too because mm-hmm. there is just a lot of diversification in media today where you know we're seeing more things related to same-sex couples we're seeing more things related to non-binary or right. um or different ethnicities right. and i think there's just so much that goes into that which really i think also you had made a comment earlier about how a lot of the stuff has been sort of the same for the past however many years mm-hmm. 20 years or more right. and the conversations have changed so much about yeah. People and human rights in general. Right. That it almost would be ridiculous not to revisit these things because we need to make sure that everybody is protected of this. Not just... We know so much more. Yeah. So that changes how we deal with things. Having more education on domestic violence definitely needs to... It's like anything. It needs to be updated, right? We yeah. learn things about health and we say, oh, yeah, you can't use that anymore. But this is going to work for the body. So like same thing with domestic violence. We've learned so much more. Other than it's when someone hits somebody. It's yeah. Like, no. Right. <laughs> There's a lot more to that. So That's such a great comment because it's so relevant. In, and we've changed the way we talk about so many things. And mm-hmm. one of the really cool things that I've been following on social media for a while is this woman, Brenda Tracy, who uh, works with college-aged athletes to help end rape culture and educate mm-hmm male athletes in particular on this and her social campaign is hashtag set the expectation she's had such a really significant reach with this and i read something recently about how she actually somebody had threatened her with like anthrax and there was this whole like fbi investigation Mm. which is insane that somebody who's trying to help the world yeah is receiving that type of negative and and life-threatening feedback from people and we've had it we've had it with runway to freedom there's people that always are gonna have their two cents of like you should be doing this this way or this that way and it's really easy to judge until you are actually doing work like that or if and also if you haven't been through something that would point you in the direction of making these types of changes because i don't i've never been to something political the way we went to the forum mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Because quite honestly, it's not going to make me sound great, but I just, I grew up in a time period in a place where I felt like I'm not political. I don't need to be political. Society just is yeah. what it is. And, you know, damn the what man, save the yeah. empire, whatever. And, right. What and, am I going to do? Yeah. What yeah. difference does it make? And when everything sort of unfolded for us with, Um, this assault that happened to Holly earlier in the year, it was Mm -hmm. like, I have to do something. I have to figure this out. And so even just going there and hearing legislators talk about why they want to be involved in changing behavioral health in Washington, it's a really good point. This gets back to my comment around, you know, the degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. At least 50% of the people on that stage who are legislators, senators, or House of Reps, we're saying the reason they're involved with it is because of a direct impact to them or a loved one. And right. it really makes the case for how prolific and pervasive this problem is. Yeah. Because yeah. Right. you have people with butts and seats in office who are saying, we need to change this. Yeah. And because I also feel the impact. And I think that right. that's something for us 
as individuals having gone through the experiences we have, having witnessed the right. system break down, whether right. it's with CPS or right. um, or law enforcement or the legal system or whatever it might be, that yeah. you know people are underpaid, underappreciated, and can't be bothered to care as much as we need them to, right. then like we have to step in and force people to care. I mean, pretty much because, you know, like the King County forum we went to and watched Joey Wilson speak in regards to schizophrenia. I mean, that's why I was there was to support him um, and hear him share his story. And he changed bills. I mean, and you know, he's a 28 year old male who's gone through, you know, horrific situations with SPD and just battling in mental health. And so him sharing his story and enough people sharing their story can can change lives. And I think Runway to Freedom's amazing for that simply just to have that forum for people to speak out on what has happened to them. So other people then come to our events and hear these stories and are like, oh, that happened to me. Yeah. Oh, that happened to me. What can I do to help change that? And we really have seen over the past 10 years some amazing individuals that have participated with us to open and share their stories. I mean, that's what I'm really excited about with doing just this first segment with you to open up that conversation to have other people on to talk about their experiences and whether that is their experience as a survivor of domestic abuse or an experience that is completely separate of that but somehow related and and advocacy or why that is because I personally haven't experienced it but I certainly have a spot in my heart for so many people that I love in my life having gone through it and wanting to support them and be able to make a change where it's like my formerly I'm not political what difference does it make mindset has turned into if not us who and if not now when right and I mean that's that's just the beauty of creating something to help others. And so when you ask me, like, you know, why you started it, did you really and like see yourself like this would be a 501c3? Well, not really. I just like thought of it as how I could help. Yeah. Because so many people think, oh, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? There's nothing you can do. But like one person can be very impactful to like now look 10 years of how many people we have like within us from runway to freedom who now have like gone off to do their own channels in other states yeah that's you know, in other countries and like this podcast you know being able to touch like so many people and you being inspired yourself to do your project and go well I'm gonna I want to take that even further and runway to freedom to be able to like provide some of that and you providing that back to us is the full circle. Yeah. I mean, that's just this, doing this should show people, well, wow, they've connected. Yeah. They're doing this to help others. And we're just two ladies here. (laughs) Two chicks just doing the damn thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the coolest things for me in just having met you and, and being able to become part of this organization is the fact that you are so open and you're so willing to discuss these difficult topics because there is a benefit to sharing your stories. And I'm very much yeah. somebody who has the mindset of there are po- there's power in numbers. Yeah. If, if we get more people to talk about it, we yeah. lead by example, then right. we're creating a vulnerability that's accepted. And, yeah. and can- people can't close their eyes. Then. No, exactly. Because we're literally like, these are real. Yeah. These are not made up. Right. And it's not it's not um, fabricated in any way. There's no, right. this is what media is projecting it to be. This is no. real, raw, 
actual life situations that people right. have encountered or right. feelings that they have. And we need right. to validate that because I do think one of the challenges as survivors of any sort of violence like this, whether it's domestic or sexual violence, is that you feel an enormous amount of shame and guilt, yeah. which are the exact right. opposite feelings of what somebody who has survived that should feel. That's what a perpetrator should feel, but doesn't. Yeah. And instead, right. abuse is lifelong for a survivor. Yeah. But it's not lifelong for a perpetrator. And why right. is that? Or how is that fair? Right. Well, no, it definitely isn't. But, you know, uh, usually on a survivor's, uh, excuse me, an abuser's position, they're mentally ill. Well, yeah, I, I, I think, you it, know, unfortunately, it, and that gets all around back to the, well, how do we, how do we intervene early enough to, to help people understand that this is an, right. an acceptable Get in there. I mean, start early. You start, have to start early so you Espe- can see that. Especially if it's a child who is in an abusive home and they can yeah. a, acknowledge the signs that that's happening and try right. to help facilitate their own safety. Yeah. But then right. also not to continue that cycle and be able to break the cycle and, and create a safe yeah. environment for yourself and for others. Yeah, because people do it. There's, yeah. there's success stories. We've heard them. 100%. I mean, with men and women. Absolutely. You know, that have shared. Uh, it's just getting, getting more of that sharing and then people seeing those outcomes. You know, there's people thriving and living, not yeah. just like, oh, I've survived. It's like, no, they're doing phenomenal things <laughs> in yeah. this world. So. And I think that it, it is something for us as a society to acknowledge that we want survivors to not just survive but to thrive which is what you said you know absolutely and i think it's really easy the way that society portrays abuse like this today for people to sink into that guilt and that shame Mm -hmm. and not be able to pull themselves out i mean there's just so much that goes into fighting that off and we need to acknowledge that and defend that um because it is a human right to feel safe and comfortable i mentioned before that rtf is in its 10th year, mm-hmm. right? And one of the- 10 years. What anniversary is that? Uh, <laughs> what do you get for that year? Um, and one of the big goals for the coming couple of years, we think, is going to be to expand the reach of the organization by having an event during the world-renowned New York Fashion Week, mm-hmm. yep. which is a great opportunity for celebrities and other globally recognized individuals to advocate on behalf of the organization. So what do you Absolutely. hope will be the outcome of RTF's participation in the event? I hope that because we are going to be doing it in a city of New York and it being so populated is that we connect with people that put us into international settings so that we can take it not only national, but international into Europe, um, into Africa. Yeah. You know, different continents around the world, um, because that's really, I used to see it as a worldly epidemic. It is. So once we get into New York, it's like, you know, there's so many, there's so many connections there. And also working with people that in the fashion world, because there's so much image based around what you should look like or what we want things to look like. And also covering up of with like fashion. I look great. I'm feeling great. I'm fine. But really kind of tearing those down and bringing fashion in that platform and on that runway in kind of a more realistic look. I love that idea. And I yeah. <laughs> I read Victoria's Secret 
basically was going to try to target their fashion show as like a feminist display mm. this year. And then I oh. guess society backlashed on that and then they canceled it. <laughs> yeah, because how would Victoria's Secret do that right. when they represent 1% of the population? Right. <laughs> there you Heidi go. Heidi Klo? Yeah. <laughs> Chime in. <laughs> it's such a beautiful, creative world, but a big reason I didn't go down that road as a stylist was because of so much of the body image shaming. And for Runway to Freedom, the models are survivors. And so some of them look very typically model body, but then we have other body types going down the runway as well. And in New York, I really want to embody that with like all the culture there and all the diversity. Yeah. So we will be having models that are not typical runway models. But I think that's perfect. And I think that speaks a lot to the mission in general, which is that this doesn't discriminate. It can happen to anybody. Look at every single person on this runway and recognize that they all have a connecting story here. Absolutely, absolutely. So in another 10 years, Mm-hmm. What do you want, want Runway to Freedom to have achieved? Where do you see these efforts going? Aside from international expansion, I guess. Um, I definitely want to have a resource center by then. So we have a safe place for our board to come together and help others. Um, having a full staff of mental health counselors as well as mentors within different fields of jobs because job placement is so huge when you're getting out of an abusive situation yeah absolutely. Um, whether that be in you know your realm of of doing like recording or interview or editing whether that person's interested in that or interested in hair we want to be uh, matching survivors with professionals who probably will be survivors too but doing a job that they wouldn't necessarily oh i can just pop on in there and get a job, but we would be creating that network for them. Yeah, I think that's amazing. It's really great to be able to think about how just doing what you love to do every day that you go in and you wake up with a purpose can help create purpose for somebody else. Absolutely. And especially, uh, I imagine coming out of a domestic violence situation that you are really trying to rebuild your self-worth and your self-esteem. So coming and feeling like I can go somewhere and I can feel proud of what I'm doing and I can feel dignified in the decisions that I'm making is probably a really big win. It's huge. When I got out of school and was choosing where to work for my apprenticeship program, uh, I chose Red because they would give me a diverse education. I had... I had different. I had a man teacher, a woman teacher, white chick, black chick, Hispanic, um, Filipino. Was represented in how to do hair, and so by getting that education and that chance, I really just like blossomed because I was able to give my artistic ability to another person and boost their confidence and then in the same token boost mine yeah you get know, something back financially too. have then have money and be able to support you know my daughter so it's it's huge it's really amazing to see just how the beauty of networking with people who understand where you're coming from mm-hmm. can create so much opportunity right and absolutely i think that that's what makes your mission and and the creation of Runway to Freedom so unique is that 
it's not just, you know, donate to this charity, donate to this cause. Here's where we're going to put this money. Um, right. But uh, yes, we're going to be doing some fundraising events. We're going to be doing some holiday drives and things like that. But right. more so, it's about what is that long term strategy and how do we get to a place where people can actually go somewhere and and take us up on these resources that we'll have available and right. building those resources out. And right. I can say quite honestly, I mean, I've spent, you know, like the past couple of weeks diving super deep into like, how can I get this website up and running? What can we do? And, and just feeling right. so engaged in it. This is the first time in a very long time that I've been so emotionally committed to something that I can't stop my brain from thinking about it and wanting to like get it right and build something that has really a lot of power and meaning mm-hmm. behind it because you lead with that. The way that you've created this organization to support survivors and their families and their loved ones and people who are, you know, just constantly impacted by this ripple effect. You have made it something that is beautiful despite the pain. And that's something that just, you know, really grips my heart and makes me feel so grateful to be part of it. And I know I've said this to you on numerous occasions very recently, but I will say it again, like I'm so grateful that you considered me to be part of the board for this organization because Runway to Freedom is something that needs more power behind it and needs to have a, a br- broader reach and a bigger voice globally. And it's just really humbling and I'm honored to be part of it. So mm. thank you for including me because Absolutely. it's amazing. Absolutely, we are honored to have you join us and help us so much through things that I don't know how to do. So rebranding, which we're doing currently and you doing the website is like huge on a level to reach people because we have that ability, but very, very, very tedious work and very hard to find. Yeah, it's, it's, it's no joke. I mean, I didn't get it hundred percent right, but I, well, I said that well, it's close enough. It's fine. She, we'll get through yeah, it. You, you, you got it pretty right. So <laughs> thank you that. for doing that and of spending course. so many hours on that and putting your time and devoting yourself to it because it, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication. There has been so many people throughout these 10 years that have supported Runway to Freedom. And I'll just want to say thank you to those people as well who have worked endless hours on like hair or makeup or modeling Absolutely. or behind the scenes, in front of the scene. Everyone, you know, that has supported it. And I, th- I hope that I have, you know, given them their due respect and they feel fulfilled by it and are now like off doing other things. And I see people that have joined Runway to Freedom and and have like grown and like done their own things and they're now, you know, advanced in their art fields, which is, is wonderful. It's a beautiful thing, but we're so grateful for all of those people. So thank you to everyone. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad you have that opportunity to thank all the individuals who have been involved thus far and to you for creating this organization. So because it's all volunteer based. Yeah. That's the the other thing. All these people that have for years have done it and put their time into it. I'm sure there's times where it's like, oh my goodness, this (laughs) is so much work. What am I doing? Am I going to get paid ever? I guess. Eh, nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the hard part. I mean, there is like that. It, 
I think I always struggle with the, I need the paycheck, but the thing that I'm super passionate about is the thing that doesn't really pay me, you know? Well, right. that's, that's, that's the other thing about run with your friend. We talk about, you know, we want this resource center, but we also want to be able to raise enough money throughout the year. So like we can have employed staff because you do have to pay people. Sort of think of it like a startup where basically you're just all trying to make it work yeah. <laughs> because not being paid <laughs> because yeah. you're like, but uh, helping the world. <laughs> right. You yeah. Know? And I think that that's the stuff that really creates such miraculous change in this world though. I mean, yeah. look at the way climate change has blown up in the last year because of a 16 year old. Mm. People are listening to her. She's traveling the globe, getting, you know, millions of people involved yeah. in this. And I, and I feel inspired by that. You know, sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, you're 16 and I'm 30. And how the hell am I just like not do I not have my life together enough to care about this stuff? Yeah. But then yeah. you start building towards something such as this and you're like, holy crap, like there's such an opportunity and, and it's huge. So on that note, do you have any final words to someone who may be hesitating to leave an abusive relationship or who needs assistance finding resources to advocate for themselves mm. after they've left? I would say if anybody is listening right now to definitely reach out to me or us at Runway to Freedom. Um, our website is runwaytofreedom.org. You can personally email, email me at lauren at runwaytofreedom.org. If it is a situation that is extremely violent, I would say, you know, call the domestic violence hotline, the 1-800 number, and we'll, we'll list that as well. Um, or immediately call 911. But we are here for you. Um, I have many people that call me Sometimes they don't call, sometimes they text, sometimes they email and share their story and kind of where they're at. And then I'll provide resources resources or what did I do? And they continue to like follow up with me. And some of those people don't follow up. And some of them say, hey, thank you. You know, I'm, I've, I've gotten through this situation and it was very helpful. So anything there may be, don't don't hesitate to just reach out and ask us because to me there's no bad question or wrong question, I would say any question is going to be educational for you. So yeah, and I think what you said, which is also really important is, you know, it doesn't have to be a phone call, it can be an email, it can be a text message, but reach out and reach out and don't question that if you feel like it's the right thing to do, there is no judgment. This is something right. that is a safe space. And that is the whole goal of runway to freedom is to make sure yeah. that your voice is heard and that we can draw from that and your experiences and other experiences to create meaningful change. So nobody has to suffer the way that people have historically or are still suffering today. Absolutely. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about such an important topic. For anyone listening, if you or someone you know is looking for immediate help or guidance, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 for anonymous confidential assistance available 24-7. To find out more on how to become part of Runway to Freedom's mission, to tell your survivor story, or to donate to the cause, please visit runwaytofreedom.org. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to Lauren Grinnell for sharing her story and her time. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your other preferred podcast platforms. Visit whothefck.com and share your email address to receive important podcast updates, or if you're interested in being a guest, submit your request via whothefck.com contact. Until next time.